Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Morning, Jen. Hi, Mayor. It's been a while since we spoke with each other. It sure has. Well, a while since we've podcasted, actually. It's been a while since I did many things that were normal. I know. What happened? What's going on in your life? I contracted type A flu, probably on an airplane, and I got very, very sick. How long were you sick for? 18 days. Wow. So how come um, you didn't get the flu shot? Or did you get the flu shot? So I normally get the flu shot. I usually do it around my birthday. And last fall, I was in the caregiving trenches. Like, like you can't believe. I was taking care of two people in two different states who had eight surgeries between them from August 1st to Christmas Eve. And I have two jobs. Um, I'm, you know, I'm a very busy woman and I tried to get my flu shot three times. I physically saw my brother and my boyfriend get flu shots. I watched the needle go in their arms. And, And both of those times I said, can I get my flu shot here too? And they said, no. So they're in the hospital. The hospital's recognizing that they don't want these patients to get the flu while they're recovering from surgery. And so they give them the flu shot, but they can't make it available to me because I'm not their patient. So there's attempt one and attempt two, both failed. Then I was on a business trip and, you know, I'm trying to cram everything in when I'm on a business trip. If I need to buy a new suit, I do it while I'm on a business trip. I order my stuff on Amazon. I do, I cram everything in while I'm gone so that when I'm caregiving, right, I'm there and devoted and I don't forget things. So I'm on the road. I'm at a store buying makeup, stocking up on pantyhose, deodorant, (laughs) and I see a sign that they give flu shots. So I I ask, can I get my flu shot? The lady that does it just went to lunch. And of course, you know, I had a meeting and and a schedule that day. And so there was attempt number three. And I actually made a phone call to my primary care doctor and said, can you get me in for an appointment? I need a flu shot. I haven't had my blood work done this year. And they said we can in February. Oh, no. Because I wasn't sick. I didn't have an immediate need, right? So they can't just Mm. fit me in to give me a flu shot. So really, that's the fourth attempt that I made to get a flu shot, and then I gave up. I got super busy doing all those caregiving things and the holidays, and I then in January contracted this horrible virus and got a really high fever, and the worst part of that flu was a horrific headache. And I suffer migraines, but this was way different. And I had to go to the hospital. Thankfully, I am a patient at Mayo Hospital, and we went to the ER, and they took great care of me, and I was feverish to some degree or another, <laughs> no pun intended, for nine days. 
that's a long time, you know, Jen. So one of the things I think about with our podcast, with this caregiver life, when we first conceived of the idea of, of sharing the caregiver stories and um, also talking to professionals who work in the field of, field of caregiving or who are, who are just professionals in general, like, you know, psychologists and counselors and social workers and maybe even fitness ex experts with not a particular focus on caregivers, but um, just in general, healthy people helping to make us healthy is developing strategies and tools for caregivers. So the caregiver stories are great and we love hearing them and we want to hear more caregiver stories. But at the same time, as our podcast grows, we like to develop strategies and tools that we can share out with caregivers. And that's what comes to mind when I'm listening to your story, that there's the strategy for getting a flu shot failed you. You yeah. didn't fail, but your the strategy failed. And how can you make that better for the next year so that you, it doesn't mean that you're not going to get a strain of the flu, but at least if you have the flu shot, you can say to yourself, I tried, really, I did try, and yes, I got it anyway, but it was worth trying and having the flu shot. Like, I think they should give it in airports. Yeah, I agree. Well, also, I think that medical professionals, just based on my experience this flu season, I think there should be a means to give caregivers and family members who are accompanying a loved one who's recovering from surgery, recovering from an illness, they're hospitalized. There's got to be a way to, to then inoculate the, the people around them. So they're their first circle of support. There isn't right now. I, I get it. You know, even though I have my insurance card in my pocket, you know, they, they don't have a way to make that happen, but until they do, thinking back about my experience this year, what advice do you have for me, if any? I think you should recommend work offering a clinic of flu shots. And, that, and I say that because it's not some big idea that I dreamed up myself, but as a former public school teacher, we had that option. Um, it was offered at least twice in the fall. And then there was at our school, where we could get flu shots after school and the pneumonia shot as well. Mm. And that's um, great. I could email the HR department, mm -hmm. my employer, when warrior project and just in our building in the Jacksonville headquarters, we have hundreds of employees. I'm sure they could set up a visiting nurse service with a local hospital or medical provider. I think that's outstanding. I'm for sure going to do that. So that's a good strategy and they probably should prioritize the who of the employees who gets first on the list so all of the um, employees that are in the speakers bureau who travel who will be the most exposed to the virus should be at the top of the list and you should have you should be answerable for it like to your to whoever is your supervisor yes i had the flu shot no i didn't have the flu shot because i have a situation i have a health thing that i can't get the flu shot but there should be Something that makes you a little accountable because being accountable is a great idea, right? Well, I, mean, I want you to hold me accountable to get my flu shot next year, Mayor. Okay. Well, I, <laughs> and I always get mine because with ALS, respiratory um, viruses, illnesses, bacteria, whatever you want to call them, um, can really take somebody down. So if I get sick and then Tom gets sick, 
we're going to be in really bad shape. So we always get the flu shot together. But one of my strategies as a caregiver seven years ago when we first moved to Wilmington was to have a new primary care doctor here, of course, because we, we both needed a new one that we share. We have the same primary care doctor. And it was, I didn't know that it was really good. And That's I'm really not, good. Yeah, and I'm not sure that it would work out for everybody, but it worked out for us. And the reason why I wanted it was because I feel as though my primary care doctor now knows what I deal with. He knows ALS, he sees it in his office. Many primary care doctors may don't, never see a case of ALS. And I think he has actually seen a few of them, a few cases, he's had a few patients with ALS. But I wanted him to know, this is the stress that I feel on a regular basis. You can see the decline, you can answer my questions, really tough questions like death certificates and what happens at the end of life and who, who's gonna help us at that point and who do I call? So those are the really deep ones to things as basic as I need a flu shot. And so we go in together to get our flu shots. And he put me on the, uh, on the list for the shingles vaccine, the new shingles vaccine, which is two doses. And I wasn't 60 yet when he gave it to me. What was I? No, I was not 60 yet. You were 59. Yeah, generally you have to be 60 for your insurance to pay, or you have to have an extenuating circumstance if you're younger than 60. And he put me at the top of the list because he knows that if I get shingles, we're gonna be in really bad shape. And I ended up with a mild case of shingles in the spring. I got the first dose. I got and had an eye allergy to my neighbor's cat. <laughs> and I, right? I mean, I was in her house and I'm so allergic to, to cats anyway. I must have had a piece of dander that got in my eye. Got so irritated. And eventually it turned into a mild case of shingles that kind of came out from the you know, I don't see it in my left eye, so it was really a problem. It was in my right eye and goes down into the nerve. So it goes from the corner of your eye, there's a nerve that runs this way. And we think it was just mild because I had the first dose. I can't even imagine how miserable we would have been if I hadn't had that first dose. And I got the second dose. So I think that strategy of sharing the primary care doctor in our situation is a good one. I'm definitely going to consider that too. There's no reason that my boyfriend and I can't have the same primary care doctor. And I'm going to discuss that with him because had we been seeing the same doctor, at least at one of his follow-up visits, I could have requested the inoculation. Mm -hmm. um, I was tested at Mayo for the flu. Um, I got sick right at the time when the coronavirus was hitting the news. Um, I can remember even the flight I was on that I think um, when I started getting sick, started feeling that weird feeling in your throat and just like your mm -hmm. whole body getting tired. And I remember seeing, you know, a number of people in the airport wearing masks. Um, and I bought some hot tea and with lemon and honey and thought, I hope I just have the cold. And it, I kind of laughed to myself, like, I'm sure I don't have the coronavirus. But the next night when I was so, so sick and my temperature was out, you know, 103 and spiking even higher than that, I, I'm in the Mayo emergency room and they took it very seriously that I really could have contracted the coronavirus. And so they 
tested my, my sinus tissue, which is not pleasant at all. They stick these tubes up your nose to scrape cells and um, to make, because they wouldn't, they wanted to see what I had. If I tested positive for the, for some type of the flu, then we could rule out coronavirus. And um, that's when I did test positive for type A. It took about five minutes. And I think it's really important when people are, are sick like that. And you think that you might have the flu, you, you should go to the doctor if you can. There are some antiviral medicines you can take if you go to the doctor really quickly. But also you can find out maybe you have something really bad. I mean, I'm not going to run into the doctor if I'm just a little bit sick, but I'm sure glad I went. I've had pneumonia in the past and I needed to get rid of that oppressive headache that I got with this flu. And I was really glad to find out I didn't have the coronavirus. I mean, I would have been pretty, pretty worried about that over the whole 18 days of being sick because the whole time I was sick, the news kept growing and growing and the coronavirus is serious. Uh, I definitely, you know, don't want it. I hope they can um, begin to control it as quickly as possible, but just the flu in the United States kills 50,000 people a year. I mean, that's huge. And it's something that we can help thwart by getting inoculations if we, if we are able and we choose to. Mm -hmm. Well, what are some of your strategies when you are traveling? Do you, do you wear, um, do you have a mask? I do. I actually have a whole pack of them. I'm going to share some information I know about masks and traveling. You know, anybody who's traveling right now, I mean, in the past when avian flu blossomed, the bird flu, we saw a lot of people wearing masks. There were a bunch of news stories. Um, and I have been sick before and the doctor instructed me to wear a mask when I began, when I resumed work and began traveling again but with some parameters. So I actually have a stock of masks um, that I can use in my caregiving role. There are times when it's appropriate to wear a mask when you're caregiving. Mm -hmm. And um, I, so I have them, I have a whole box. I don't use the same mask more than one trip. And here's why. As you're wearing the mask, which I do, you are breathing air through the mask and the germs don't get pushed away from the mask. They actually get sucked kind of into the fabric. So they, whatever germs you're breathing in, whatever germs you're trying to avoid are actually just being filtered by the mask. When you take that mask off and you're now holding the germs. So the, those germs you were trying to avoid are in your hands. If you put that mask in your backpack, on your nightstand, on your kitchen counter. Now you've put all those germs you were trying to avoid in your house. So you should take it off. And I usually go into the restroom that's closest to the exit at the airport. I take it off, I throw it in the garbage, and I wash my hands. Good really strategy. Fun. And I dry them with paper towels. I do not use the air dryers, the hand dryers in air, airports. I mean, obviously, if there's germs in the air of the bathroom where I'm washing my hands, they could land on my hands after they're clean. But by drying them with a paper towel instead of the air dryer, I'm not taking way more air full of germs and shooting it 
through the air dryer onto my hands because then you're just putting more of those germs back on. I do have a little tiny travel bottle of Purell and then I use that and then I go to my car. Um, I also travel with baby wipes. As soon as I get on an airplane, I pull out a baby wipe, I wipe the seatbelt that I'm, you know, that I'm touching. And that's the germiest place on an airplane, by the way, is the seatbelt. Because think of everybody's hands touching your face and then you're mm -hmm. you know, touching the seatbelt. Then I wipe the armrest and I wipe the, the, I pull the tray table down and I wipe it. A lot of times I don't use the tray table, but just in case, you know, just in case. And sometimes, like if you're in first class, sometimes they'll pull the tray table down for you. You don't even have a choice. Mm -hmm. I kind of keep those wipes out. And if I use the restroom or, eat, or after I've done kind of cleaning my area, I wipe my hands really good. I use my Purell. Um, and sometimes people look at me weird for that and I don't care. Nah, I can't care. You want to, you should write up some of these strategies for us. Okay, I will. And I also want to, um, I want to say one more thing. I see a lot of people, um, I'm making a note here. I see a lot of people at airports who have a mask that they wear, um, that is neoprene or it's cotton, you know, it's a, they've ordered it off of the off of Amazon and and that's great you you know but remember that mask is doing the same thing that the disposable masks do so if you have that and you're using it I strongly suggest that you also travel with some Ziploc bags that you could put that mask in when you leave the airport and you wash off your hands and so then you could take it right home and and put it in your your washing machine because otherwise you're probably putting yourself more at risk than if you weren't wearing the mask. Mm -hmm. wow, I never thought about that part of it. So um, sickness prevention um, is something I do pay attention to and was really careful after I got the flu not to go to work. Not, I didn't go out in public. Um, I remember the first day I went out in public was um, after my fever had subsided and it tired me so much that it took me almost a week to recover from just like going to the grocery store and and doing a couple of errands. It took me a week. That's really how sick I was. I lost seven pounds. And I had to think about like during that time, I wasn't able to accompany my care recipient to the doctor. I wasn't able to work um, or do any of the normal things. Even we got a delivery and I didn't answer the door because I didn't want to make the FedEx man sick. But I'm wondering, um, that was really nice of you. <laughs> I'm wondering what advice you have for when people are done being sick. Like how do you, uh, do anything special in your home? Yeah. Well, let's, let's take a break. And when we come back, um, we'll have a, we'll take a break in here. We'll do a sponsorship here. And then when we come back, I'll share my strategies. All right. Sounds great. Okay, great. We're back. Woo. All right, so some of the strategies for for getting better for is that what you're asking? Well, what kind of I mean, what do you do in your house? So you I was super, super sick. I sweat every day for two weeks. I, I mean, I wore every anything that looked or could be considered pajamas, used all the sheets, all the blankets, all the Kleenex. I mean, my house, it became germ central. What do you do? about that in your house? I do a lot of wash. I like to wash with bleach. 
Mm. Um, I get, um, you know, like Clorox that you can use with uh, color clothes as well as the white clothes. Yeah. Um, so I, I do a lot of wash. I don't do it on cold. I'll do it on warm. If it's, if we're really sick, depends on how sick we are. Um, I'll wash the sheets on hot to kill germs. Um, I wash the counters down a lot. Make sure you use the dishwasher. Wash your hands a lot. Wash your dish towels a lot. Because if you dry your hands on them and you have mm. any residue left on your hands after you wash them, you're just going to recycle things. Now, I do keep, in case we have AIDS in here, I do keep um, masks in the house that are individually wrapped. So they're individual masks that are meant to be disposable. I also have um, a box of gloves. I put medication on Tom every day anyway, so I need gloves that I wear because I can't absorb the medication myself. Um, so I think all of those are best practices. I do know that in the ALS community, for people who have regular visitors that come through their house, they do have a sign they put on their door and they ask people that if they are sick, um, not to come in. You know, they appreciate that they would visit, but to please not to come in because it will compromise their person who has ALS. So I think that would be true of anybody who has a compromising disease. If you're in chemotherapy or you have an immune disease or you're trying to recover from something like the flu or sepsis, I think you want to keep those germs at bay. I also got some advice from my Mayo doctor. And that was about wearing shoes in the house. So all the germs that are in the air eventually end up on the, on the floor, on the sidewalk, and they go on the bottom of our shoes. So they also go on our cars. One thing that I did after I got all the way better was I cleaned out my car, took Clorox wipes, did every touchable surface in there because I had been in my car from the airport to home. And I'm thinking about the other people that could be in my car and expose these germs. And I have no, no idea how long these germs live, but you know, better safe than sorry. And, um, but think about wearing your shoes in the house and think about, okay, if I'm, I'm wearing my shoes with all these germs on them and then somebody isn't, you know, somebody's barefoot and then they sit down and they, you know, they scratch their foot or whatever. I mean, all of a sudden now you've got, E. coli and all these things from the bottom of your shoes they're on your hands um you and i are both military parents um and one of the things that our service members learn when they're in boot camp is don't touch your face mm -hmm. anybody listening who served at first thank you but also you remember from boot camp don't touch your face and the reason is because that's how germs get spread that's how sicknesses get passed on and so I think that's another really great strategy um, for caregivers and I've also helped my brother with medications and I have gloves and definitely I'm very mindful about touching my face. That's good those are all good things and like there's sometimes there's you know just places that you're in and you can't help it and you know you're exposed to something and um you know, you just try to take the best precautions you can without making yourself crazy over it. <laughs> and I have to give this advice to caregivers. When you, and anybody listening, when you get really sick like that, the most important thing that you can do for everybody in your life is just rest. 
just rest and hydrate because you're no good to anybody if you're super sick or dead and all the stuff will wait all the things waited for me all my work all the housework all my special projects it all waited and it's all fine it's okay to be sick give yourself permission you know to to recover especially the dead part i mean <laughs> that's right now mayor i'm not the only one who got put out of commission recently huh? we were put out kind of simultaneously what tell us what happened to you it's so interesting so i had golf out of problems starting in january i actually think they started the night of my birthday because that's what i remember it might have started before that but you know i think it was the night of my birthday that it started i had you know cupcakes or whatever it was i had that had you know more fat in it and and sugar than you used to and you're really careful with your diet so I am. I mean, yeah. You kind of have on a gallbladder diet anyway. Yeah, I don't really eat a lot of fats and sugars and stuff like that. And so I, oh man, I sleep in another bed. I had so much pain. I thought it was really, I thought I had a virus or something. So much pain like in the middle of your stomach. And then I had it periodically and I, I thought something's wrong, man. This is just not me. So going to my doctor that we share, <laughs> I sent him a message and I said, I don't know, I think something's wrong to my gallbladder. My mom had this problem, she had hers out, her sister had it out, my, my grandma had it out, and we know Tom had his out last year and got really sick from it. And I can't afford to get that sick, so I've gotten smarter over the years. I would say maybe 20 years ago, I might not have paid attention because- What, what were the symptoms that you, just for anybody listening who doesn't know what a gallbladder attack is like, what does it feel like? It feels like a lot of indigestion. It feels like cramping under your sternum, like not underneath the sternum, but below the sternum and to the right side. It feels crampy. And then around in your back, it feels like you have a big knot under your shoulder, your right shoulder. The one thing I would caution people is to think that it's a gallbladder problem, but it's really a heart attack that's happening. We are in February is um, Heart Aware Heart Association Awareness Month, um, and so that would be something I would caution people as well: is that they recognize the symptoms of a heart attack versus gallbladder. They can be very similar. So, what was the marker for me? Um, probably the cramps that I had more than anything. Um, I don't, I think that was it really. And they la lasted a long time. Taking a bath really helped. Um, it did keep me up at night. It made me sweaty. Um, so why didn't I go to the emergency room? It was hard for me to go to the emergency room. That's such a really lousy thing to say, but it is hard for me to go because Tom doesn't drive. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when I sent a message to my doctor and said, well, let's check this out and see what's going on. I didn't right. have this for you to be an emergency situation. Now you have to either use some form of public transportation and leave your care recipient at home alone for an undetermined amount of time, mm -hmm. or you have to seek assistance, which is hard. I mean, you don't have, not everybody has a 
a close person nearby that could come and help them in, an, in a medical emergency. And you know it requires hours. It's not like somebody's going to just drop you off and, and, and be done with it. You're going to spend hours with that person in the emergency room. And then you also have the care recipient at home. It's not, I don't, I don't know that I made perfectly 100% the right decision by not going to the emergency room. Um, but I do know the signs of a heart attack and I know that they're different for women. And I didn't have those symptoms. I had symptoms that were very much specific to gallbladder pain with a history of gallbladder problems in my family. So I and you were that. communicating with people that care about you. You're communicating with me. Um, yes. I have a lot of experience with gallbladder um, attacks and surgery and removal. Now, and you were also communicating with your kids who don't live nearby, but were, you know, helping you put together a plan. Mm -hmm. And right. your neighbor? I was, I was on top of it. So yes. I wouldn't say that I ignored it. I was, I was on top of it. And then the third, by the time I had the, like the third gallbladder attack, I knew that I had to contact my doctor. So I messaged him, told him the backstory of my family, reminded him of Tom's situation last year. And he put me in, they got me in for an ultrasound to one of a different office of theirs, somewhere else in the county. They put me in stat for an ultrasound because he knows the ramifications. And again, that's that good strategy of having the same primary care doctor. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I explained to the sonographer as well what was going on at home, what my personal situation was. And so I went from what, what I share those results with you within an hour of having the ultrasound. Yeah. I want to point out this part of your strategy because this is, an important tactic that a lot of people don't think about and because we're subject matter experts in caregiving we know that even when you're a radiology tech is doing an ultrasound that they are also taking notes mm -hmm. and so every single person that you encounter when you're experiencing medical trauma or you're trying to get something diagnosed and 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 you need to move the ball forward in that situation Every single one of those people is taking notes, putting it in your chart. And so the more people that you can tell, I think this is gallbladder. I have a family history. I also have these extenuating circumstances. I need to expedite a surgery if I need one. They're putting those in the notes and the next provider is going to read it. And eventually you have this cumulative understanding of why you need to be acutely treated. And I think that's important for caregivers to know and to do and so they can advocate for themselves to get prompt attention. Yeah, that's a really good summary of what happened. She tested for something called uh, the Murphy sign, which is when they take their, whatever they use, I forgot what it's called, you know, so I'm not a sonographer, but she used her tool and you, you put pressure under where the right rib is, right, right around that time. And On the liver? Yeah, and if you react to it, then that's an additional piece of information that your gallbladder is beginning to be in trouble. And she did that, which I was grateful that she did because she shared that then with the radiologist who reads the report. So it's a clinical- And what did it feel like to you? Um, yeah, it kind of made me jump. It, was, it hurt, mm. right? Because your gallbladder is irritated, it's inflamed. So it- it hurt and made me jump a little bit. Um, so I wouldn't say it was horrible, but I had a reaction to it. 
Like we don't want it to be horrible. We don't want to wait until it gets to be horrible. You want to, you want to have all of these things happen sooner rather than later because the gallbladder never gets better. When you have gallstones and you start having gallbladder problems, yes, it is true. I probably could have waited another year before I had surgery. But you know, you're courting danger. You already know what the problems can lead to. We know what happened with Joey for you. We know what happened with Tom, that he went septic and liver failure and all those problems. And since it's not going to go away, we did it sooner rather than later. I think in the earliest stages of gallbladder disease. And I think and my recovery has been remarkable. I'm not so, one week out. You need surgery. Okay, yeah. what's your first thought? I need surgery. <laughs> what yeah. am I, how, how are you going? I'm going to juggle all that. Yeah. How am I going to do it all? So I put things in motion. And we can, on another episode, let's talk about our strategy. Let's revisit the worst case scenario and kind of the tweaks that we would make to that because that's, that would take up a lot of time right now. But I had to go back, I had to go revisit my emergency book, my emergency preparedness book because life changes. It's not a book that is going to stay static. Life changes, things change, insurance policies change, um, maybe your advanced directives change, maybe power of attorneys change, maybe bank accounts change, maybe your desire for the way things should be change because change because it's a year later or two years later or three years later. It's something that needs to be revisited. Maybe passwords change or where you keep your passwords have changed. There's things to, to look at again. And if everything is good, then you're good to go. For me, I felt like I need to had I need to make changes. So a week ago, last Sunday, that's what I spent my couple hours doing was going through my book and making sure everything was the way that I wanted it to be um, to the best of my ability and hope that I had done a good job. And I still think that it was probably a big mess what I wrote out. It wasn't it wasn't um, linear. And it's hard, it's difficult to make it linear. What's the most important thing when you die? Or you're dying. What is the most important thing for your family members to know? And it sounds crazy, right? Because it's just gallbladder surgery. But you know, it's surgery and things can go bad. So I think to wrap up the story, I think I did a really good job getting ahead of the problem before the problem took over our lives and we were in a really big emergency. I've been working very hard on my health, what I've been eating, good food, losing weight, my fitness level, keeping keeping my mind functioning really well and nice and healthy, embracing lots of um, healthy lifestyle changes that I think my recovery has really been pretty good. We're not one week out. Tuesday will be one week. And so here we are, what, seven days, five days, we're five days. You seem amazing. I've done some walking. I'm following my doctor's orders as hard as it is because I miss running. But I've, you know, I've been walking, I've been getting out there, I've been napping. And I think that's a really important strategy for caregivers is you have to take care of yourself. You matter too. And that's a really important piece to take away from this. We matter as much as the people that we take care of. That's right. Prioritize yourself and yes. think about your strategies. Think about what tactics you have what tools are available to you and make sure that you have a plan and so we would love to hear from our caregivers that are listening and even if you're not a caregiver but you like listening to us we would love to hear some of your ideas on strategies and tools that we can share 
on our next podcast. How can people do that, Jen? Well, a really simple way is to make a voice memo, record your voice on your phone, and or you could record a little video if you want, and you can email it to thiscaregiverlife at gmail.com. That's the absolute simplest way to send us your message, give us feedback on the podcast, make a recommendation about a future show. Um, and we want to hear all those things from you. We have so many listeners now, don't we, Mary? We do. We have over 1,300 listeners. That's crazy. Isn't that great? That many people are either living this caregiver life or they're passionate about this caregiver life. But whether you are a caregiver or you know one or you just want to be more informed, we're so grateful you're here and listening. Yeah, thank you. And where, where can they find us? So you can find us anywhere that you get your podcasts. Um, we're also happy to say we're now an iHeartRadio podcast, which is great. Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, wherever you get your shows, that's where we are. You can also find us on social media channels. We're on Facebook at This Caregiver Life and Instagram. We are on This Caregiver Life on Instagram. And so maybe some of our caregivers uh, will send us some photos because I've really been lax on our Instagram feed. Yeah, we love that. And also, you can find us on Twitter, at this caregiver. You know, Twitter is always all about being brief, so we just drop the life. Right. <laughs> just at this caregiver. And the best part about being on social media is we're on 24-7. Um, we're also on LinkedIn. So if you're listening and you're a professional, please follow us. And if you'd like to uh, provide your expert um, insight on this podcast, we'd love to have you as a guest. So feel free to reach out to us there. Yeah, we're looking forward to the next few weeks. We're going to have some new podcasts that we bust out. Yeah, I mean, we're back, baby. We're back. All right. See you next time, Jen. Until next time, Mayor.